Welcome to the Better Money, Better World Show, a podcast project of Impact Capital Managers, or ICM. ICM is a group of investors who believe that by solving the world's greatest challenges, we will generate market-leading returns for investors while bending the arc of human history towards sustainability and justice. ICM members have backed companies ranging from Tesla to Coursera to Vital Farms. Collectively, ICM's 60 members manage over $12 billion. I'm your host, Daniel Pianco, a co-founder of ICM. My day job is co-founder and managing director of Achieve Partners, a leading investor in education and human capital. Here on Better Money, Better World, we'll explore the stories of our investor members, the companies we're building, and the limited partners allocating money to investors who don't just seek alpha, but also to leverage their capital to build a better world. Episodes will be released each week and feature a new guest telling their own unique investment stories, strategies, and perspectives. And we've got lots of great guests lined up. So if you're excited about what this show might teach you about impact investing and the people behind it, make sure you subscribe to Better Money, Better World, wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're feeling generous, give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. It's a great way to highlight the work of impact investors and grow the community of impact investing. Now, with that out of the way, let me introduce you to our Better Money, Better World guests. Aryan Shuti came to a shocking conclusion early in his career. It's really expensive to be poor. Things that many middle and upper class people perceive as free or no cost are extremely expensive for people who don't have bank accounts or the ability to transfer money to a friend or loved one. Even basic functions like depositing your physical paycheck can exact a high toll for many Americans. In effect, the poor spend 17% of their income on services that the rich get for free. Aryan is building core innovation capital to democratize prosperity by investing in early stage companies that will transform the cost structure of modern financial life for millions of people at the bottom of the pyramid. Unicorns like digital currency-based Ripple slash the price of sending money home for remittances, while Vimo Education is transforming how people pay for college away from debt and towards paying a percentage of your income only if you're successful in life. Excited to have Aryan on the show to talk about how saving a little bit on every transaction can make a meaningful difference in the lives of the working poor. Aryan, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Really appreciate you uh, uh, joining the team. It's an honor to be here, Daniel. Uh, so we've worked together a little bit on on at least one deal. Um, I, I'd love to hear you describe a, a deal that uh, epitomizes your style of investing, really represents what you do, and what makes Core special. Uh, great question. And I think a deal, a recent deal that we've done that epitomizes all those things is a company called Atomic. Uh, Atomic, in short, is uh, a technology company that provides access to the payroll through APIs. The reason this is a good representative of what we do is because it was born from a thesis. And most of our investment comes from a thesis where we have a point of view on what we'd like to see in the world and how technology can help. And as you know, CORE is focused on economic emancipation for the little guy. Uh, one of my theories in the world has been that too many people are stuck in 
bad bank accounts at their peril, and the switching cost is just too damn high. It's just at the end of the day too complicated to, you know, like take a piece of paper to your payroll office and say, I'm going to switch to this credit union or this neobank or whatever is the cooler, you know. And that very basic banking relationship is so fundamental to someone's financial life. And so if we could just lower the switching cost, then many more people would be in many better accounts and the world would be a better place. So that was our thesis. And for years, we looked for a company to invest in against that thesis. And we looked at many, and there's been a recent explosion of this, uh, of this idea. And we had an opportunity to look at all of the companies and look at all of the management teams and all their strategies and picked what we think is the best one by a long shot. So I like it for being thesis-driven. I like it for being about financial empowerment. I like it for, for finding a management team that's, that's mission-aligned with us. And I like it for being not obvious. So one of the things that CORE tries to do is to be imaginative, really creative in how we think about financial empowerment and not just to invest in things that look on the surface like it, right? Like my mom would never on the surface understand why this is a company that is mission-driven because it's in the back office. No consumer will ever know what Atomic does. They'll run into it when they're signing up for their credit union account or for Chime or, you know, any type of account and in line it says hey if you want to switch your payroll you know do it now and then you can just do it in line and actually that's atomic behind the scenes doing it so is it really that hard to switch bank accounts no it's not but uh but behavior is such that the act the complex act of printing out you know like the new you know like the new routing and, and account number and taking it to payroll and having payroll do it has a very low conversion rate. So it's a lot more to do with human behavior than anything else. Now, the benefits of digital connectivity are much beyond, you know, simplifying walking a piece of paper to your payroll office, but it's not that hard. So how does Atomic actually work? So you, you mentioned you're in the, you're, you're, you have to go to your, uh, check your, your, your community bank to actually have Atomic show up in the example you gave? So Atomic sells to financial institutions. The financial institution has to prompt the consumer to switch. Yes, which they want desperately, right? Because if you're, if you're a financial institution, whether it be your neighborhood credit union or your neighborhood CDFI or Chime or B of A, right at the end of the day, when you open an account, it doesn't matter to them unless it's funded. And the profitability of that account goes up by a factor of 10 if you get direct deposit on it, right? Like your, your, right. your paycheck. And so th they're highly incentivized to do this. And, you know, a lion's share of account openings in America go without direct deposit funding. And so therefore are, you know, sad sack secondary accounts. And so... Atomic sells to the financial institution, and the financial institution, you know, provides this in line to the KYC process. Daniel, what's your name? What's your social? What's your address? And then they say, do you want to switch your payroll? Sure. Okay. You know, type in your, where do you work? Oh, okay. University Ventures, right? And et cetera, et cetera. And then you can, as part of the application process, when you walk away, you have an account, 
and your payroll is, is moving on to it in the next paycheck and they manage all of that. And, and how do you know the new place is better, is, is less predatory than the old one? Well, presumably you're switching for a reason. So people are opening accounts, not funding them, and, and then uh, sticking with their predatory bank account. All the time. Wow. 90% use case. That, that's, that's shocking. Is, is this like the Cass Sunstein nudges argument where you know, people don't do rational behavior unless they're nudged to do it? Yeah, that's, that's an important part of it. There's more to it. You know, like what's great, what I love about this is you're in part accommodating human behavior, right? Think of this as the, as the financial equivalent of phone number portability, right? Like how often did we change our cell phone provider until our phone numbers became portable? We didn't. We stuck with them. And so we had to endure really crappy service for a long time. You know, it, the, there was an exponential improvement in NPS and customer service amongst mobile carriers once we could just drag our phone number with us. It was really behaviorally driven more than anything else, right? I mean, you could you could switch your phone number just as easily. True. true. I, I guess what I'm trying to think through is, does the average consumer know that they're overpaying on their checking account? Oh, no. So this is not a panacea. Agreed. But many customers do know, and especially those who are hit with, you know, there's $32 billion of overdraft fees levied. And, you know, the chimes of the world are cleaning up on the anger that people feel for their traditional bank account, especially at the bottom end of the market. So can, can you define yes. chime, by the way? I'm not sure all of our listeners will know what chime is. Sure. Chime is a neobank. Um that provides an alternative to a traditional bank account. It's a debit card, basically, and has some credit features and some savings features and such. You know, for all practical purposes, it's a, you know, it, it looks and feels like a bank account, but it's totally digital. And So a low-cost uh, low alternative to a traditional bank account. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so one of the things that just the amazing statistic um, – uh, that that you throw out in one of your writings is is that it's really expensive to be poor, right? Seventeen percent of the income uh, of of many low and moderate income people goes to stuff that the rich get for free, like banking. Um, c- can you describe that and sort of how your thesis kind of chips away at that seventeen percent of someone's spend? You know, the the even sadder thing, Daniel is my more recent revelation that it's expensive to be American. Uh, we can come back to that. But on, on the expensive to be poor uh, bit, yeah, you know, like very basic financial services costs a lot. And those are, you know, the, the kinds of things to more easily imagine this is, you know, it's the services you get at a check casher, a payday lender, right? Very cash-driven services, which... Um, in many cases, trade transparency. They're highly transparent. It's very easy to see how much they cost for convenience, for anonymity, and for uh, instant liquidity, all things that banks don't offer. Um, but the consequence is that you end up paying through the nose, indeed, you know, for stuff that we get for free, as you point out. Why aren't the big banks kind of stepping in and changing their behavior to target this market? One would think that 17% of your income is not worth a little bit of convenience. And even these aren't really convenient because going to a check casher actually takes a lot of time versus, you know, take using your phone and just, you know, taking a picture of a check. Yeah. 
um, you know, and, and it's and it's a hundred billion dollars of revenue, right? Like fee revenue. So there's even a commercial argument why banks would and should. I think the reason that banks primarily don't is because a bank's business is as a lender, and banks are regulated so as to really, you know, like be fairly conservative in their lending. And, you know, like, and banks don't like taking on high risk customers and people at the bottom end of the pyramid, you know, with choppier records and with choppier cash flows are, you know, do represent higher risk. And so I think the regulatory environment makes it hard for banks to really step in heavily. You know, if you're if you're in business to hold deposits and make loans against those, low, low deposit holders aren't that interesting either, right? I'd rather try and spend a couple hundred bucks to get someone who makes a hundred grand and has got a uh, hundred grand in you know in deposits versus someone who makes thirty grand and has got zero, um, you know, deposits. So, to my mind, banking the unbanked isn't really the holy grail. It's providing. It's using the the benefits of technology to ha- to lower the acquisition cost, lower the distribution cost, and lower the financial friction on providing the financial services that low income people need. Is it hard to describe your impact thesis then to people? Because you know, you're talking about saving pennies on, on millions of transactions, as opposed to saying, you know, hey, I'm saving the environment or I'm getting people jobs, which some other ICM impact capital manager members do. So how do you actually describe what you're doing to limited partners? Yeah, we say we're investing in financial empowerment and that we want money to work harder for everyday people and that technology inevitably will do that. It's a, it's a, it's 100% likely from our point of view. And so that we want to invest in the companies who are at the forefront of that revolution, and that there are multiple unicorn opportunities within that very large market. Is this like leading with the bottom of the pyramid? Yeah, that's kind of an emerging markets framework for the same idea, right? Like the, the bottom of the pyramid in India, you know, it looks dramatically different from the bottom of the pyramid in the United States. So high level, yeah. And, you know, like in here, it's really about access to quality, not about access, right? Like you can get access to a lo- Anyone who breathes can get access to a loan, basically. In, in, in the, the United US. States. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so in the US, you know, the bottom of the pyramid at is about price, access right? to quality. Any, anyone can get access to a loan, but at a price. And I guess that you're hitting yeah. on that, you know, the price can be very high relative to the risk. Is that mm-hmm. implicit in what you're saying? Yeah. Can you quantify how much you're cutting the overall cost of some of these transactions, like looking at your um, portfolio, right? Atomic, you know, can you can you say, hey, we've transferred X number of people from high cost to low cost, um, or like Nerd Wallet, which is more of an information site, although probably also drives leads. Like amongst your portfolio, how do you then talk about um, this process of lowering the inherent cost of these these products and yeah. services? Yeah, so we try to be as rational about those positive externalities or the, or that social impact as we are about our returns. And so every year we do our impact audit and we collect data from our portfolio companies and we basically bucket the externalities into three buckets. Cost savings, so this loan is cheaper than the, you know, than the alternative. Um 
shocks protected. So net present value of of putting someone into an insurance product. You mean shocks like economic shock to an individual? Mm -hmm. Got it. Yeah. Um, or net new uh, or, or net new savings created. Right. So those are kind of the three buckets in which we compute economic value that we've created for someone. Right. That's our social impact. So you can actually track those things imperfectly, but yeah. You know, so we we've developed over the last decade a practice by which we collect that. We try to find the best benchmark for each of our companies. That's the most intellectually honest. We've got a three-person impact audit committee who you know who kind of calls our bluff on when we're you know when we're greenwashing our numbers. We deliberately don't publish them because we don't want we want to have as little pressure so as to greenwash as possible. The point is real intellectual honesty in this effort. And the top line is, is on one hand, really exciting. So over the last decade, our portfolio companies, by the mechanism I just have described, have created about $45 billion of savings to about 25 million Americans. 80% of them are low moderate income. Wow. That's a big number. That's cumulatively. That's a big number. But when you reverse engineer it, it's not that exciting. So it's basically $100 per household per month, which is better than a, you know, than a cappuccino. It's real, and especially to a lower income family, that's meaningful. But it's not nearly enough to change someone's station in life. And so we're spending a lot of time thinking about how do we 10 or 20x that over the next decade plus, right? Like, how can you get that closer to a trillion dollars of positive externalities? Because without it, you know, you're basically saving someone a couple bucks and you're not really creating mobility, economic mobility. And that is the holy grail. But that gets back to, I think, what you started talking like it's expensive to be American. And so yeah. the scale of the problem you're trying to solve is so large. Is it something that the private sector can solve? Not on its own. But there is so much the private sector can do. But you're right. We need a better industrial policy. We need all kinds of things that the public sector needs to do. Let, let's talk about the biggest value you can drive, though, through financial empowerment. Like, as as you look around, what are some of the areas where you think you can 10x your impact the way you described it? So what people need much more than a cheaper loan, as much as we've been focused on a cheaper loan, and so this has kind of been a humbling, you know, aha for us, is they need more income today. So there's lots of ways of doing that. It's a little outside of the, you know, the traditional financial services scheme. But but just think about the shift of people moving from W-2 employment to 1099 employment, which has many good facets to it, but is secularly bad from a financial perspective, right? There's all kinds of pre-tax benefits that come with a W-2 employment that are gone in 1099 that represent in very real ways, you know, the majority of our social safety net. So if there's if there's ways to to simulate W2 employment in 1099 for 1099ers, you know, like that's a that's a big driver. The second biggest thing that people need is retirement income. The majority of people are not re not prepared for retirement. They will not be able to retire at all. And we need something to the tune of uh 
I forget the exact number, but it's it's somewhere around three hundred billion dollars per year for everyone who's coming into retirement age to get them to be able to afford poverty level subsistence, you know, until they pass. Wow. So there's a huge dearth there. And, and how so, do you, how do you even think about like increasing someone's retirement savings? How, what what's an investment that can have that kind of an impact? Yeah. So. There's there's been so much innovation to get people to understand their credit score, right? Like, uh, and and that education has dramatically improved people's consumption of better credit products. And so, I think there's a ton of opportunity to get people to understand the importance of their future selves. And invest more earlier through behavioral economics, through collaboration with uh, the employer in partnership with, with traditional retirement plans as a function of insurance products. There's all kinds of ways to reimagine those product categories to get people to participate in not bleed their retirement products, et cetera, et cetera, right? To basically, in, you know, build them from earlier in a greater fashion and keep them protected and maximize their utility. And can you like give people money or are you saying that people should be encouraging more savings or what are the, just to push one more time, like what are the specific mechanisms without massive government intervention that, that the private sector can do to nudge more people in this direction? Yeah. I mean, you know, think think of all the commercials you see, you know, for a mere, you know, price of a cup of coffee, you know, this, that, and the other thing. And so if you were to put away that price of a latte every month earlier and consistently, I mean, compounding, uh, yeah, I mean, like, so there are so many ways to kind of, you know, to get people, you know, th- think of, um, we, we just invested in this really exciting company called Yada to give you an example now they're not focused on on retirement today but you know they they are using a very powerful nudge of of people who are motivated by a very small chance to win a huge amount a huge prize so they're basically taking the lottery behavior and applying it to savings not crazy to imagine applying that to you know to retirement by the way, that's a fascinating idea to get people to do bad behaviors that are in the end good for them, right? Yeah. I mean, effectively, something like Yada is really driving people to buy lottery tickets effectively for their own savings. And instead of it being 100% loss of proceeds, right? Like as most dollars you spend on a lottery ticket will receive, you know, Zero. only the satisfaction of scratching off a piece of paper. And then that's a that's a lost dollar. Here it is a hundred percent retention of that dollar you put into a savings account. And and what what's like the revenue model for something like that if it's a hundred percent retention? So you know, in the long run, in a in a more than zero uh, interest environment, there's yield over a big portfolio, and they've been able to grow something quite substantial over very little time. Um, and then there's tons of tie-in products. But it is, but it is a gateway drug. Speaking of gateway drugs, 
And, and that's <laughs> yes. probably the first time I've said that uh, on this podcast. But but let's talk about gateway drugs. Uh, sometimes you create a gateway drug and, and the future is bright and yada seems like it epitomizes that. But sometimes when you invest in an early stage Series A company, you know, using technology and algorithms, you don't get the outcome you quite wanted or expected. Like, have you ever invest in the company and woken up in three years and be like, oh my God, I just created a monster? Not quite so vivid, but there are many that we've started looking at that we thought were very exciting and we have ultimately passed on because when fully understanding it, we understood that, you know, like the saint was also a beast. And, uh, you know, and, and, in, and in our corner of the world, credit is a very easy version of that, right? Like on one hand, it's very important to give people access to credit and it's an incredible tool that's leveraged in the American economy almost better than anywhere else in the history of the planet. And it is also something that can really get people over their skis. And so think of that combined with, you know, most people's largest asset, their home. And so there's, we've looked at some companies that provide people liquidity on their home. Incredibly powerful, right? Like if you're poor and you own your home, there's no way to get money out of it. In the case of an emergency, being able to tap that is a very powerful tool. And you know, ultimately for a number of plays like that, we've concluded that the most common use case is one that is net negative in the long run, even though it provides you some short-term liquidity needs that you have, it will decimate your net worth maybe forever. And so, you know, like where those were like, okay, well, short-term good, long-term bad, not mission aligned for us. Yeah, I, I think, um... You, know, you you can definitely get yourself into some hot water with financial products. But when you when you kind of look out at this universe, um, are there plays that you think that you've looked at and you, you had the opposite where you thought, oh, my God, this is a negative, but then realized it's a positive? Because that's kind of the more interesting cognitive dissonance almost. Yeah. So, you know, for us, it's been it's been largely um things that don't seem mission driven on the surface but actually are so we've we've accidentally passed on things in the past um where we're you know where we're like no this does this doesn't have a mission um whereas actually it has a big mission so for example we just you know we've been looking at this company that's helping with ach fraud you know on the surface of this is like why is this a mission driven company and when you look at, you know, who needs ACH transactions that are real time, it's low income people because they have high liquidity needs because they're waiting until the last day to, you know, to pay their bills because, right, they're just trying to, they're just trying to juggle every penny, um, you know, in real time. And so being able to, right, like, and so in a way that's, that's a very fundamental uh below the surface kind of infrastructure investment that can really be liberating for the customer that we, you know, whose liquidity we care the most about. We see a ton of that kind of stuff. And we, and it's a, it's a point of like debate around our table all the time to really scratch below the surface and see, you know, like what can move the dial, even if it doesn't look like a happy, you know, like mission driven company, 
you know, that's serving customers with some super benign this or that on the surface. Now, let's come back to the it's expensive to be American because I don't think you've quite covered it yet. And I, I think you want to. So, um, <laughs> yes, you you've you estimate or uh, you quote someone estimate it would cost a trillion dollars of subsidies to effectively make everyone have basic financial health in this country. Can you talk about the structural problems and then how what CORE does can fix them? Yeah. So we started our journey really focused on the un and underbanked. And that's kind of when I caught on to this meme it's, exp- meme, it's expensive to be poor. And really in the last year, you know, like we've uh, we've started to understand how many people and i think covid was a big aha moment here right like how many people are incredibly financially fragile and it's not just the underbanked it's there's many bmws parked outside of mcmansions of people who are living paycheck to paycheck for all practical purposes and a shocking number of people you know like are one shock away from, you know, from real financial distress that will be very hard to get out from. So that's become our increasing focus. And, you know, along with that, one of the things we've really tried to do and are still in the midst of is to understand how do you really structurally solve for that? And, you know, a humbling aha for us has been that you know, cheaper, better financial products are really only a very small part of that, in truth. It's what we've done the last decade, and we've done a lot of good stuff, and our portfolio companies are doing amazing stuff, but it's a rounding error. And so, you know, that has us looking more at insurance than ever before. Um, It has us looking more to these kinds of big categories, like how can we aid and abet in income creation? How can we aid and abet in retirement asset creation? Um, and how can we lower big cost centers, right? Think of what people around the kitchen table worry about, right? Like I'm worried about the cost of housing, worried about the cost of healthcare, transport, all these big cost centers, FinTech can actually make big impacts in. So to give you an example, right? Like we're invested in this company called PadSplit. It's not a FinTech company, but we believe that, you know, kind of that FinTech embedded into other sectors can make a bigger impact than FinTech can in the financial services sector. What is PadSplit? Sorry. So PadSplit is basically Airbnb for affordable housing. (laughs) So long, long form, low cost, co-living at scale. Wow. How, how many people are utilizing that service? Uh, low single digit thousands, um, but growing rapidly. Fascinating. And, and what's the fintech angle there? Is it is it the ability to kind of split payments or is it the, the matching function? What, what Where's your value add? Yeah. So it's around underwriting. So you need to predict someone's likelihood to, to pay. So, you know, uh, screening that's called in the real estate world, but you know it's the same as financial underwriting, and actually bringing a lot of financial tools to it can make that a much more sophisticated process. It's dealing with payments, and you know this company has had a dramatically lower default rate because of the way they deal with payments versus the traditional landlord. 
and it's the ability to use rent as a form of for savings in the way that ownership is a form of, of for savings. And so the company allows its customers to basically overpay for rent a little bit because their savings is so significant. And in the process, you know, they put a little bit of every rental payment away in the savings account that can serve as a security in case the company, you know, in case there's a default, but it, ser- but it saves, it serves as a savings account when, you know, when someone has paid their rent for a year, they end up with 500 bucks of savings. Huh. Which, as we, we the, the off-quoted stat, what is it, that half of Americans don't have 500 bucks in savings or something? What, what, is that the right stat? Yeah, that is the right stat. It's not exactly accurate, but that's what's thrown around a lot. Cl- close enough for a duffer like me. Um, so, but one of the things I'm just listening to the way you're describing technology and sort of the population you're looking to serve is that many people in this low and moderate income demographic don't necessarily want to be using digital tools or or maybe they're less likely to have access to digital tools. Um, and so how do you kind of, you know, talk about access without having a pad split in every Walmart or a, I don't know what the equivalent is, but some version of what Western Union has from a convenience perspective? Yeah, I think I, I quibble with that assertion. And we believe strongly that while there is a digital divide, that it is dramatically lower than the financial divide. So the digital, right? So so there's a access to technology um, is quite profound and more and more expansive than access to high quality financial products. So more and more people across the spectrum, including low income people, are consuming more and more of their financial lives completely digitally. Um, than most people assume. And so if you can build it, they will come? If you can build the online tools, folks will find you in abandoned Western Union? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's proof points galore. And, and and do you think that, I mean, Western Union is a typical tax on the poor, right? I mean, that's that's what I'm using Western mm-hmm. Union for. And, and and forgive me, if is that is that a correct way of characterizing Western Union? Yeah, they they would quibble with you, of course, but but I use the same example, and it's and it's it serves its purpose well. So, c- can you just, in a nutshell, like why does someone use Western Union today, and what kind of suite of products or services do you think that can be built in a tech first or low cost way that sort of solve that fundamental problem? Trust and everything. So the reason that people still use it is for is because they trust it to work. My mom used Western Union. My aunt uses Western Union. My uncle uses Western Union. I know and, and I know and I see the sign and it's on the other end as well. And my and my mom and my sister on the other side, right? Like so trust a hundred percent. And then the second question is, you know, what can transform everything? I think it's about, you know, the opportunity is for the next gen who don't have the fixed cost of physical real estate, of dealing with cash, they need to build trust. Too few teams we see invest enough or any energy in building trust. It's it's funny because a lot of people talk about how hard it is to get low-income communities to trust anybody from the outside. So... In effect, you're saying 
the biggest issue is the hardest thing to bridge. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, one, la- one last question uh, before wrapping up. Um, usually when people talk about sort of dramatically lowering the, cri- the cost of financial products, they talk about like Bitcoin and decentralization. You haven't mentioned that once. I'm just wondering, you know, do you think that um, there is the capacity to dramatically decentralize and lower the cost structure leveraging um, kind of this latest innovation? Or do you think it's not going to have the impact on the underbanked and, and low and moderate populations that some have hoped for? We do, but not in the way that most people assume. And in fact, we're very long on that. Uh, we're a very early investor in a company called Ripple, which you know, which basically presumed that XRP was more powerful in its transfer of value than in its uh, storage of value. And their specific use case is to lower the cost of cross-currency settlement. And for this Western Union customer of which you speak, uh, and in fact, MoneyGram, uh, as you know, is is a significant Ripple client. They are lowering the cost, unbeknownst to the consumer, right? Like the consumer doesn't deal with Ripple at all, right? Like just like most consumers don't need to deal with Swift, but it's a modern tech stack that lowers the cost of the infrastructure dramatically. So we think there's more use cases like that that are less about a store value and more about a transfer value where the, where distributed ledger, smart contracts can play a very important role in an increasingly de- you know decentralized distributed world where there's less trust between two entities than there was yesterday. And so we're we're quite long on on that tech stack but not in owning coin necessarily. Well, I hope you bought some XRP if if you uh, if you if you're early in Ripple. <laughs> you don't have to answer that. <laughs> Clearly, um, you know, XRP is a superior, you know, transaction processor than Bitcoin. And so I guess what you're saying is the underlying technology enables you to do things differently and faster and cheaper. Um, and that and that Ripple and, and currency is is, a, is, a, is the first use case for digital currencies, right? I mean, or, or for the for the blockchain upon which digital currencies are based. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but there's all kinds of really interesting use cases. We're we're still very early. We're in 1999 for that tech stack. <laughs> well, uh, I, I hope you're right because um, I'm a, I'm a big believer in 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 coin in digitization of, of the economy as well and the future of financial services is clearly you know where when i got into you know this was when we started accepting payments from africa and for one of our universities and and we had african students calling us up and saying we're paying 10% of the tuition to come to your university because we have to use western union or you know our banks or whatever can we pay mm-hmm. you in bitcoin and to me that was the fundamental use case of bitcoin which was like if you can transfer from nigerian naira to US dollar and mm-hmm. zero transaction costs as opposed to 10, 10% transaction costs for a university degree program, well, you just saved, you know, six months of someone's labor. I mean, so, you know, I actually think that much of your thesis 
works almost best in the third world. And it's kind of interesting you bringing it or the developing world. It's interesting you bring it to the United States and saying, hey, don't the hundred dollars a month doesn't matter as much to the customer in the U.S. Right? We're not we're, we're saving them lattes. We're we're making a, a difference, but we're not doing enough, right? And so, but but conversely, a hundred dollars a month for a student in Africa is is game, is, is, is life changing, right? So. Um, you know, I, I think I think the frame through which your work is driving change, the, the numbers are really massive. And then, you know, to your point, like you're, you're kind of in inning one of a nine inning game, even though it feels like $100 a month for lower and moderate income student people is still a, a, a massive impact. So that, that's, you know, phenomenal. And then going back to the LP communication, right, do you feel like people get it outside of sort of the like the banks that I think are the core of your LP base like do, are you do do LPs like family offices and foundations get what you're doing or do you think it's really the banks and sort of people who understand the impact of this on people's lives yeah it, it, ours is kind of an arcane world and unlike clean tech right there's not there's less to read about it in kind of the popular press so it is mostly people who come from finance. So the family offices that are invested in us, you know, are kind of banking family offices. So almost everyone around our table in some way or another is involved in the uh, financial or insurance industry for sure. And, you know, their, their interest is a combination of our mission and a window into innovation because they're big, you know, conservative things and even with their own venture funds, right? Like they just want a window into what we're seeing and they like the upside yeah. that it represents. Well, certainly companies like Ripple create massive upside for their investor group. So uh, I'm sure that's reflected in your returns. Arian, thank you so much. You've, you've added such a dimension to what we usually talk about on the show that I really appreciate uh, you bring forward some some issues that you know don't don't get enough thrift in the uh, in the impact community. What is the usual on the show? Education environment is probably eighty percent, mm-hmm. and and it's it, it reflects what you just described, right? Which is that most people focus on sort of workforce education uh, and the environment, and probably environment is number one by an order of magnitude, and then sort yeah. of broadly defined good good jobs, education, those types of things. So. Environment's probably fifty plus percent. Education's probably like thirty percent, and then you know everything else. Yeah, well, makes sense, right? I mean, if the oceans are rising, there, you know, then what we make doesn't really matter. And if we can keep them at bay, then the, what you do and what we do will matter a lot. Yes, and and as you said, kind of the intersection was kind of most interesting from a community perspective is the intersection. Like the deal we're working on where uh, income share agreements are trying to bring down the cost of education, right? So how do you take the cost of education, which is right now probably the second largest spend category for families in their lifetime, down from, you know, a $100,000, $200,000 decision to a thirty or $40,000 decision by changing how you pay for it? True that. True that. Great. Well, Aaron, this was great. Thanks, Daniel. Thank you so much. Really appreciate your time. Totally. Thanks so much for, for having me. This is Marika Spence, Executive Director of Impact Capital Managers. Better Money, Better World is made possible in part by ICM, a nonprofit network of over 60 best-in-class fund managers investing for superior returns and meaningful impact across North America and beyond. 
Our members share a passion for partnering with entrepreneurs and scaling companies that will realize a more resilient, equitable, and sustainable future. If you enjoyed today's conversation, tune in for the next episode of Better Money, Better World. Tell your friends and visit us online at www.impactcapitalmanagers.com.